1: Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Elliot Reichart, host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Professor Vincent Adams about her new book, Glyphosate and the Swirl, an agroindustrial chemical on the move. Glyphosate and the Swirl is part of a broader trend in research that is developing new methods and techniques to study our increasingly polluted and toxic world. Professor Vincent Adams is Professor of Anthropology, History, and Social Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Her recent book takes glyphosate as a case study and follows this chemical as it moves from the past to the present, from the lab to the dinner table, from outside our bodies to within our cells. to grapple with what it is to live in such an entangled world. Professor Vincent Adams, welcome to the show.
0: Uh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Um, Professor Adams, I would wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Uh, sure. Uh, well, I'm a medical anthropologist. I. Uh, how far back do you want me to go?
1: Um, you know, just like how you got interested in metanthro, uh, okay. how it is that you yeah. ended up on, the, yeah, all the way okay. back.
0: All the way back, I was I'll try to be brief. That's really hard for me, but I'll try. Uh, I started out as an undergraduate at Brown University, and I was actually um, uh, kind of a science person, and I got into the neurosciences, which were brand new at that time at the university, the study of neuroscience, uh, well of of uh, the sort of cultural, so semiotics was emerging and the neurosciences were emerging together. And I, I was kind of interested in both of them. And I was in a neuropharmacology class and uh, was fascinated with this problem of cognition and culture and how the brain processes things in culturally specific ways. And then I got into the second year of that course of study or the second class, which was a neuropharmacology class. And I realized that a lot of the work in that field involved... Um, research on um, live animals. And I decided I didn't want to do that. So I wrote a paper for that class on the uh, problem of aphasia and cultural differences. And uh, that got me involved with a professor at Brown named Lucille Newman, who was a medical anthropologist. And I spent more time with her. And I realized that she was doing something that I really was drawn to and then spent the rest of my undergraduate time. Oh, yeah. The rest of my undergraduate time, taking all the medical anthropology courses that she offered and all the medical sociology courses that were offered on campus there and at the graduate level, uh, in the first year graduate level, I got into a few of those. And then wrote my senior thesis on, um, believe it or not, uh, acupuncture. Um, because the, um, the in the neuropharmacology class, I started doing some... On a second paper, I started looking at the neuropharmacological mechanisms of acupuncture and realized that the scientists were using the biomedical scientists were using all the wrong measures for understanding what was happening with acupuncture. And they were reducing it down to the simplistic argument about uh, endorphins and I just fell into this world of Chinese medicine and thought, oh my God, this is so much more interesting. So then I started graduate school with an interest in Asian medicines. Um, And because I had found out about medical anthropology, I applied to then the only program that offered a PhD in medical anthropology, which was at Berkeley and UCSF, a joint program, um, which is where I am now. And, uh, And then started my graduate work um uh, looking at one very interesting asian medical system which was tibetan medicine and at the time you could only go to study tibetan medicine on the periphery of tibet so i was working in nepal for a number of years and then uh, over time and did a lot of projects on nepal and you know once you immerse yourself in that world you realize medicine is a small piece of this much larger story about what's happening in place and time and but yet it's also a really great window onto some of the big predicaments of the places where we work and so um, I sort of stayed on that path and wrote a couple of books on Nepal and medicine um, and then had an opportunity to go start working in Tibet so I spent a fair amount of time looking at uh, women's health in Tibet and uh, the politics of, of Tibet basically and even though I've never published the book on that, I've had a manuscript that's in process for 20 years. Um, I have just spent a lot of time working on the politics of health in that space and and how, we, how science gets used in different projects to advance uh, social and political interests and also conceal them, as the case may be. And then at some point in my work in Tibet, I started really getting worried about whether I could publish anything because the things that I wanted to talk about were things that could potentially get all of my colleagues there in trouble. And at that point in time, a new opportunity opened up to me because one of my colleagues, Gay Becker, had had died suddenly and was in the midst of being awarded a grant to work in New Orleans on post Katrina recovery and the process of aging. And the NIH program officer came to me and asked me if I would take over the project because she was my colleague. And I, I was, it was complete departure for me, but because I was really worried about the work in Tibet, I thought maybe I'll just do something different for a while and then got into the post-disaster world and and found that uh, to be a really interesting story about the other side of politics of well in this case disaster in tibet it was of occupation and um and that opened me up to just like pursuing a lot of different uh projects that you know that had to do with interrogating capitalism in new ways interrogating the predicaments that we've gotten into with climate change and um in that space also around toxicity and that then freed me up to do some more interesting critical analysis of the world of global health in terms of evidence and science and did the metrics book. And then this project I got to by way of having completed the work on metrics, you know, and i had always had these strong interests uh, ever fr- ever since the beginning really of how evidence and how science in particular is used in projects of social, um, management, concealment, uh, political you know resistance, and political uh, oppression. And so um, I met this woman who uh, was uh, actually my neighbor, and we started to take a lot of walks, and she was an integrative pediatrician, and so I was really interested in her work. And the more she talked to me, the more I realized that there was a really interesting story that needed to be told about the way medicine... Uh, had overlooked food and and how the food system in our country had become a disaster in its own right and how uh, especially agrochemical uh, food production was probably needing a lot more scrutiny and critique. And so um, I thought at one point, well, I'd like to write a book about her work in medicine and the problem of... Um, uh, agrochemical food industries. And I told her that, and she said, Oh, I've been wanting to write a book for years. And so I realized, well, I have to co-author a book with her then first <laughs> as a sort of ethical thing to do. And so we spent a few years, uh, mapping out a book that looked at the, this, this sort of perfect storm where, um, in her world, as she said, kids were sicker than they had been, uh, sick, uh, a, a generation of sick kids that were sicker than any generation before them, and she attributed it mostly to the food they were eating. And um, that was part of the perfect storm. The other part was the way um, our science had been managed by um, the sciences of toxicity had been managed by uh, industrial capitalism in ways that made it very fraught in terms of its truth quotients. And the problem of um, of uh, the politics of denial around chemical harm. And uh, so a lot of these things all came together in the book where we talked about the books called What's Making Our Children Sick, which was a title given to us by the publisher, the trade press publisher, which I'm still not very happy with, but we we did it anyway. And it was a really great project and I really loved it. But the whole time we were working on it, there were these nagging problems that I was having with the way my co-author really wanted to tell a straight story about the way science could prove the harm from glyphosate. And uh, that there was so much more to the story that I thought needed to be told about glyphosate being a sort of model system for how we've gotten into a bad situation with being able to rely on science to get us out of the trouble of chemical harm. And that's what led to the book, Glyphosate in the Swirl.
1: So it sounds like there was some challenges with having to create a simple straightforward narrative about chemical harm. I was wondering if you could explain uh, what the swirl is and how the swirl concept can be used to sort of address that challenge.
0: Uh, great question. I can describe the swirl. I'm not sure I can say that it will help us solve the problem. I think my sense of it is that it describes the situation that we're in more than it does resolve it. Um, the swirl was what I came upon, uh, after first wading into the territory of how track getting traction and accountability on chemical harm in our world was so impossible. Um, and I mean that in the world, in the global sense, in in a global way. And, you know, it's heightened visibility uh, of that issue in the U S but the way in which the, no matter how much traction you might get on the science, it seemed to just disappear in terms of actually gaining traction on doing anything about it. Um, And in, in the case of glyphosate, Um, The swirl sort of first defines the predicament we've gotten into around knowledge of the chemical and its potential toxicity in that it swirls in different uh, consensus-driven ways into different spaces at different times, but it never settles and it moves and it looks like it has solidity and it doesn't. The me- the, meta- the sort of model system that I'm thinking of is, or that I use in the book is the murmuration of starlings that move through the sky and cluster and then break up and then form other clusters. But this swirl also describes for me, um, I found this through doing the, the bigger book project, uh, the way that the chemical lives in our world in swirl-like formations where it clusters and concentrates in certain places, in soils, in plants, in atmospheres, and then also in bodies, um, and and causes different impacts depending on how much it's concentrated in all those different places. But it doesn't produce uniform, linear-like cause-effect maps for us because it's always moving and never settling. And so um the third place where I explore this is in the in the bodies of of, of people. And I, I got access to the bodies of children through my co-author on the last book um to look at the way in clinical practice she was using glyphosate to Anchor her theories about how foods were toxic and creating a wide variety of chronic health disorders for kids that appeared on the skin, in brains, in organs, in guts. And um, her argument was that the way the chemical glyphosate moved through the body, it could produce all these different effects. So in some places, and and with some scientists, it was working in the liver to cause harm. In other people, it was causing harm in the guts. And so the whole system was being thrown off in a swirl-like kind of way. But it also describes the way she was able to sort of forge a theory of a harm um, that she would take. I also think it describes the way activism works with chemical harm, um, where people grab hold of certain kinds of scientific threads and then use those to push uh, political agendas forward and make headway with certain legislative processes and, you know, lose ground in other areas. And, um, yeah, so I feel like the swirl is not a metaphor. It's a it's a description of how we live with chemicals and as we live in this way with chemicals and are potentially harmed by some of these chemicals we also have to sort of think about our science in ways that work in step with that swirl like fashion um and the big thing with the science and the knowledge being swirl like i think if there's a critique in it's there's a you know an underlying critique of academic capitalism that has made it for a situation in which because the investments of science have been so tethered to different industries and capitalist agendas. Um, You know, that, that pulls us in ways away from our ability to trust the science Um, in, in ways that are oppositional to the way that other fields of research are now really pushing for, you know, using science to land political gains.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Um, why is it important to study um, glyphosate ethnographically or from the perspective of an anthropologist rather than say as a, a scientist? What sort of additional benefit is there from approaching in the way that you have?
0: Huh, Um. Uh, let's see you know, I, I felt like, well, I'm influenced by a lot of great people in the approach that I took in this book. Annette Singh was a big figure in my mind in the way that she shifted the ethnographic gaze from, you know, human centered um, uh, relationships to things and the way those things guide us into different spaces. And that, that, that breaks up the, you know, sort of the plantation, it breaks up our methodologies in ways that force us to deal with all these different systems that are at play. Um, I also was very influenced by Murphy's work on chemical harm and the idea that we should be following the chemical and Mel Chen's work. And then Nick Shapiro's uh, great work on formaldehyde was super influential for me. Um, So this idea that if we follow the chemical, we end up in different places in the stories we're telling about the nature of chemical harm, the causes and the effects and the possible avenues for redress and addressing those harms. Uh, so, uh, my thinking was that I wanted to f- sit with glyphosate for a little while. And first, I was interested in how all these different people were using glyphosate to make certain claims. But then, as I started to look more into glyphosate, I thought it had an interesting story to tell of its own and its own ontological let's say multiplicity in the ways that it was discovered in the ways that it, because it was a multiple thing that had multiple different purposes, like it was patented for multiple different things, um, historically that all opened up the possibility for new spaces that it could move into. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to follow the chemical through its journeys and all of these different places and, and see what that does for the story that we want to tell about, um, That I wanted to tell about glyphosate's habitations in our world.
1: Wonderful, thank you. So, how is it that glyphosate became so closely associated with genetically engineered foods?
0: Yeah, that's it's a really interesting thing. You know, every time I have a story, I have a conversation with anybody about GMOs. The first thing they say is, "Well, you know, we want things like golden rice, and you know, this is no different from agriculture." And from, you know, culling herds, and it's, oh, it's the same old thing. But what most people don't know, and what I didn't know before I started this project over 10 years ago, is that most of the genetically modified foods were designed for um, two main purposes. 99% of GMOs are designed to withstand the spraying of glyphosate, which is Roundup, which is the patented product, you know, product patented by Monsanto as an herbicide Um, and the second thing that they're modified for is the presence, the insertion of um, a toxin called BT, Bacillus thuringiensis, which is a pesticide, which kills any, if a bug eats any part of a plant that has BT in it, it will die. And it dies through a kind of septicemia where it punches holes in the lining of the gut and then the the animal dies. So, so the basic food crops that are 99% of the market for GMOs are, um, soy, corn, canola, cotton alfalfa, and um, um, blanking on the fifth one, um, uh, on the sixth one, the food crop, uh, sugar beets, sugar beets. And those crops are designed so that uh, they withstand the spraying of glyphosate or Roundup, and they uh, kill insects that uh, haven't got resistance to the BT. And that that system of agriculture was designed so that um, you know, in theory, it was to produce higher yield, make cl- make crops more prolific by not being able, you know, not having to compete with weeds and not having to compete with bugs. But you know, it's raped. It's basically <laughs> it's basically turned um the agricultural world into a situation where farmers are now triply dependent on these companies for the seed crops because you can't reproduce the seed crops it's illegal it's a patent violation you have to have fertilizer for the soil because the soils are being killed by these uh by the spraying of roundup and other toxic chemicals and the um uh, pesticides that are used in or to go with these crops. So there's a triple dependency. And so farmers are having to be subsidized by, you know, the government all over the, well, in the U.S. in particular, in order to sustain themselves because it's so expensive to farm like this. Anyway, that's the system we have. And it was designed, you know, and then the food system is organized around making use of these basic food crops, sugar beets. So sugar, corn, products, um, canola oil products and, um, soy products. Those are the basic commodity crops that use GMOs in the U S and have worldwide presence and are, you know, it's a, it's a really fraught system. Um, so anyway, that's where the GMO connection is with with glyphosate, and that explains those crops and that agricultural system. Explains why there's so much glyphosate in the world. However, keep in mind, Roundup is marketed directly to the public, and so it is a it is a very powerful weed killer, and so it's also sold to people who want to use it in their, um, in their. Uh, in parks and in recreational areas and playgrounds in their backyards on sidewalks Uh, you know, it's, it's everywhere.
1: Yes. Um, And most people seem to have, as you mentioned in your book, small amounts of it in their urine when tested.
0: Right. So there've been a couple of studies done on um, urinalysis. Uh, A guy named Paul Mills down at UC San Diego did these studies where they were looking at, they had, they found old samples of urine and then they compared them with contemporary and actually it shows up in the urine of a lot of Americans and in the breast milk of breastfeeding women.
1: Yeah. So it's sort of everywhere. It now. is. It is. So um, you describe glyphosate as having ontological multiplicity. Could you explain for our listeners what that means and sort yeah, of how sure. its origin story relates to that?
0: Yeah, I was starting to talk about this earlier, because when it was created, and there's controversy over, you know, the provenance of this chemical, to begin with, which is all in the book, but you know, it was originally discovered as a wheat as a, um, a metal chelator. And it was patented as a metal chelator. And by a chemical company that probably got bought by another chemical company, which got bought by Monsanto at some point. Uh, but perhaps, monsanto's own story is more accurate where one of their um scientists was actually experimenting on different chelators to try to create a weed killer and came up with the formula on his own with the chemical on his own um but when it was identified as also a weed killer um it got patented as a weed killer um and not just as a metal chelator so it had double potencies right there but it also um has a patent on it for being an antimicrobial, which is of course one of the reasons that people are worried about it being in human systems because it would kill microbes in the gut. Okay. So, so there are all these ways in which the chemical mutates and changes depending on the context it's in and what it's doing in those worlds. And so that's a kind of multiplicity right there. But then I follow that through in the book to the ways that it does that in different spaces as well, whether we're talking about agriculture, whether we're talking about bodies, or whether we're talking about legislative debate, you know, testimonials being given in front of legislative bodies, um,
1: yeah. Um, what is it about um, ontological mul- multiplicity that makes it very hard to determine whether glyphosate is safe or causes harm or causes damage?
0: Uh, well, one of the things I, I trace this in the book in a couple of different ways. Um, the fact that it operates as a chemical in some contexts and as a biologically active entity in other contexts, and this is where I go into the debate about regulating the chemical, Um, you can see how that shift, uh, that multiplicity enables it to shift from being regulated in one way in some spaces and other ways in other spaces. So because it's a chemical, it can be, because it's a chemical, it can be patented as a biological thing, it can't be patented because it's a chemical. um, So it's biological effects um, make it. So the FDA, the USDA, and the um, EPA all have different ways of thinking about the potential harms of this chemical, depending on how they're reading what it is, either as a chemically active or a biologically active thing. And so um, that enables it to slip through the cracks of regulation pretty carefully, pretty uh, fully, I would say. And you have to read the details in the book.
2: (laughs) Yes. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: Um. So, um, why is it so hard to make sense of chronic illnesses in terms of what causes them, and how did Michelle? Um, come to understand that the chronic illnesses that she saw in her pediatric clinic might be related to glyphosate
0: yeah so michelle is michelle perro my co-author from the first book who i write about also in this book who worked with who i worked with uh, to get many of the ethnographic um, materials on the clinical uh presence of glyphosate and um her theory is that glyphosates i'm not going to I'm, she could probably do a better job of this than I can. But, uh, the basic idea is that in her world, lots of different things are happening in the body that look like symptom, a symptom array of harms, um, or of, of malfunctioning systems, let's say. And, uh, so in some people, for a variety of reasons that may have to do with their ability to methylate toxicity toxins or toxics toxicants that get in their body or their inability to do that, that may have to do with uh, other problems they may have having to do with allergic or immune system responses. All of those things end up producing pathways that show symptoms in different ways, but may be related to the an underlying fundamental problem with the way their um, nutrition and the food they put in their bodies is being processed in their bodies and is impacting the basic foundations of digestion and nutritional, you know, accumulate, accumulation of nutritional content from materials. So glyphosate has a big impact, she argues, for a variety of reasons. One is it is an antimicrobial and it breaks down the microbiome of the gut, and once you have a gut that is uh, l- where the lining is has become leaky, uh, you uh, and and it can become leaky through dysbiosis, which is the over presence of certain harmful bacteria and under presence of healthy bacteria. Um, the the tight junctures of the microvilli get uh, kept open, and a lot of bad chemicals get into the bloodstream. So once you have this system of a bad digestion from the food that we're eating, from the toxics in the food that we're eating, and you have chemicals more present in the body, you you get immune system reactions that are sort of low-grade chronic response. So you have like inflammation, chronic inflammation. But because the body is not getting the nutrition it needs, it doesn't have a good immune response. It has, a, it has a faulty immune response. So you have this low-grade chronic irritation, inflammation going on all the time, poor nutrition, and you ultimately end up with a lot of digestive problems. So, you know, diarrhea and um, um, sort of straight digestive system malfunctions. Then you also have immune system reactions that range from, um, autoimmune overreactions to, um, just sort of sensitivity responses that are triggered by this inflammation state all the time. So things like eczema, um, asthma, um, ulcerative colitis, uh, you know, a series of des- this is all her thinking about it. I'm not a doctor, so I am not equipped to be able to evaluate whether it's right or not. Um, but her theory is that these things all stem from basic flaws in the way that our foods are being produced, the way that they're impacting our digestive system. And then our systemic responses to that, that show up in a lot of different chronic, dis- chronic ailments, um, even psychiatric problems, because of course, a lot of the chemicals end up in the brain. And my interest in her theories is not so much to say, oh, she's right. She may be right. She may not be right. But I like the way that her her approach shows us how glyphosate becomes a sort of glue for her theories, cohering a theory of chronic malfunction, multiple malfunctions, and chronic uh, disorders that are that are on the rise, actually, among a lot of uh, populations. Um, in relation to food.
1: Uh, thank you. That's um, and so um, perhaps the traditional response to these theories might be to say, well, we should hand this complexity and these difficult questions to to science, uh, and let a scientific consensus emerge. You know, do some experiments about this, um, but for a variety of reasons, it seems quite hard to achieve uh, the scientific consensus around glyphosate. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, what, what is a scientific consensus and what about glyphosate makes it quite challenging to achieve that? Uh, I'll right. follow-
0: yeah, no, that's good. I mean, there's a whole couple of chapters on this in the book and that's one of the reasons, again, that I thought glyphosate was a really important story. Um, I think that there. We, especially in the times we live in of, you know, anthropogenic climate change uh, where we really want to rely on the science. And I, I'm a scientific believer. I am not opposed to science, but I think that uh, what glyphosate shows us is something that's common to a lot of different fields, especially around chemical harm, but is particularly pronounced in this case of how the history of producing knowledge, scientific knowledge through the pass through of of industrial support for uh, studies of chemicals has made it really hard to decipher um, where the truth is. So in other words, academic capitalism has gotten in the way, especially around agrochemical research, um, because almost all of it has been funded by industry. It's gotten in the way of us being able to really trust the science, And I'm not a person who believes that just because it's funded by industry, it's lying. (laughs) But I think that there is an argument to be made about it muddying the waters. So we have a growing um, group of scientists in the world who have been looking at the uh, potential harm of glyphosate and publishing on that. And they believe that we are going to get to a new consensus. They're sort of you know, Kuhnian paradigm shift people who believe that eventually there'll be so much data will just have a different view of the harm of glyphosate. And, you know, there has been some traction on that in the last few years where the International Agency for Research on Cancer based in France came out with a ruling that it was a probable carcinogen. And that has been picked up by the WHO. And of course, that's being contested by other groups in Europe, and other groups of scientists and the national academies of science engineering and medicine in the US produced a report which claims that it's perfectly safe. So there the consensus in the US is that glyphosate is not harmful. And then there's a more minor consensus in the agro industrial world that says glyphosate is way less harmful than other pesticides that could be used and, and herbicides that could be used. And so why are people complaining about this? I mean, and it's true, it is less harmful probably than a lot of others. But so the, in the world, that, you know, of the, the different worlds that glyphosate sits in, there are a lot of people who do want scientists to just solve this problem and to come up with the, and, uh, the better research. And all throughout all the documentation on this, you have these claims about the consensus being this and the consensus being that. And um, what, I've, what I came to decide is that, one, the consensus isn't really um, reliable, it's not reliable anymore in this case. And also, there's no such thing as a consensus. It's a constantly on the move. It's shifting. And it depends on where you locate yourself within what I call the swirl, um, that you would claim a consensus. And it's partly because of the way glyphosate has moved in these different places, that we have multiple different versions of the consensus operating at once and against one another in direct contradiction to one another, whether you take the idea that they're looking at different things to heart or whether you take the idea that they're looking at the same things, but they have different investments in what the outcome is. So it's a, it's a constantly uh, unsettled problem.
1: Thank you. Um, because there might be questions of whether it's a chemical or a biological agent as well.
0: That also comes to play in it, absolutely. And you know, I mean, the the way consensuses are formed through organizations like the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine is that they just they have this idea that you go and look at everything, and then you you come to some conclusions based on the best possible evidence of comparing and contrasting. But these are really difficult projects to compare and contrast the kinds of data and the materials. Like in some instances, they're looking at the weight of livestock to see whether they've had a health impact. And other people are looking at organ systems in the and you know, molecular and biomechanics or you know, proteomics in those systems. And they come to different conclusions and then the committees have to like compare those two conclusions and decide where the prominence of evidence lays right and the question of where the science is produced and who's paid for it are seldom asked even in the organizations like the Nasam committee they don't have They haven't just brought in industry scientists to make these decisions, but those people aren't always looking at where the data came from and where the publications were published and how they were published and who did the work and what their goals were in the research to evaluate the quality of the work either way. And it's basically too hard for anyone to do all of that. I mean... Even science studies scholars can't do all of that. It's like, you know, the Latourian, you know, footnoting, black boxing process happens all the way down the line,
1: and it becomes too hard to actually make a case about it. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, What is academic capitalism and what's its origins in the modern university, research university in the States?
0: Oh, I'm not going to be able to give the great details about this, but basically academic capitalism is this idea that um, there is a, no firewall between the industries that are funding the science in the academy, in you know the university, um, and the university's own research uh, uh, practices, which assume and presume that they have freedom of intellectual property and they have freedom of, you know, and and that they're being honest about the work they're doing. So in the case, I don't know about the history overall. It's a very complicated question because for every different science, there's probably a different history. But in the case of glyphosate, it started, I tell the story from the start of Monsanto's hiring of a guy named Howard Schneiderman who was a um, um, insect developmental uh, biologist uh, from UC Irvine in 1975. Um, And he actually documented in his own autobiography the painstaking effort that he went through to convince his academic counterparts to not be afraid of collaborating with Monsanto on these development and research projects. Um, and there were ethical concerns and there were concerns about, you know, credit where credit would be given, um, fears about, you know, industry scientists not being fully able to disclose. And these are debates that are continuing in every field of science where industry is funding science today. In the pharmaceutical industry, it's really big. Um, but that was sort of the beginning of it for, for um, the story of glyphosate was with this guy who was able to make these seamless connections between the academy and the industry and get a whole bunch of researchers in different institutions ultimately across the country where agro industries were paying for whole fields, uh, and departments of agro sciences to, to come into existence. And no one really questions. I mean, some people question it, but it's not really considered a problem, a conflict of interest anymore. Um, and, and so there are some people who like Lisa Barrow, who have been able to document how, um, there's a bias in publications when industry funding is underneath is, you know, is behind research, but I'm, I actually, you know, I wouldn't call it a bias as if the truth lay somewhere else. I would just call it, um, you know, a continued set of interests that create a swirl of knowledge that accomplishes certain other things. Um, but it means that there's, there's also, uh, sometimes there can be real conflict uh, for people who are outside of those circles who are finding different uh, outcomes. So yeah, academic capitalism is, you know, it's here to stay. We're not getting away from it, but it's made a mess of things I would say in terms of being able to really decipher how much we can rely
1: on the science. Because it's not able, one's not able to really separate the science from the industrial processes the science is designed for. Well, it's like Elizabeth,
0: it's like um, uh, Isabel Stanger says, you know, it's not like it's false science. It's not like it's corrupt science. It is intentional science and its intentions are very clear. That is to gain, you know, industry outcomes that are, of interest to those funding sources. There's no, there's no, I forget, I forget how she, I talk about her, her language for it in the book, but it's sort of like, you know, there's no, there's no um, outside of the box question that could be asked in industry science that would necessarily put the whole thing at jeopardy in
1: the first place. Wonderful. Thank you. Could you talk about, um, the hearing in California in twenty seventeen that you attended um, uh, regarding Proposition twenty Proposition sixty five, um, and sort of the um, ways in which Glyphosate tripped up, as you said, even the most heart wrenching commitments to hold chemical companies accountable.
0: Yeah, so this was um, the California EPA, the Office O E H H A, the Office of Environmental Health and Human. Uh is the, it's the local EPA branch of, um, it's California's EPA ba- basically committee. And they held, uh, after this news about glyphosate being potentially carcinogenic, probably carcinogenic, which means that it's been tested in animals. It's shown to be carcinogenic, but in humans hasn't been tested for that. So that's what makes it probable a category, uh, B carcinogen. Um, the, after that news broke, the California EPA held a hearing where they were looking at all the evidence, uh, of whether to add glyphosate to the list of toxic, um, chemicals that needed to have warning labels on all the products. Um, and, um, it's the toxics, clean air and water or something act. Anyway, I can't remember, but, um, they also had open public testimony. And of course I knew a lot of the people who were there and I went there with them and, you know, watched the, the uh, you know, watched the legislative process, got involved in some of that as, you know, a participant observer. And, um, and what was interesting is that the EP, the OEHHA actually did decide to to agree, to, they, they agreed with the sort of WHO's new stance on it being a probable carcinogen. And that would have meant that they would have had to put warning labels on products. It wasn't going to get rid of the products from the shelves. It wasn't going to stop anybody from using it. It just meant that they would have to put a warning label on, but even then the Monsanto corporation actually did file the lawsuit against the state for, um, uh, a, a, to, to prevent that from happening. And that was successful. And so, you know, there's a huge ag industry that doesn't want to change any of this in California, in particular in ag, you know, our legislative body is super beholden to the agricultural sector. So, and the agricultural lobbyists. So that was unsuccessful, but you know, in the book, it's funny, I'm not, I'm not saying it was total failure. I mean, I think, what I was trying to do in that chapter of the book was talk about the way glyphosate has become an agent of uh, sort of, of an, an ally in the fight. Because even though the, the outcome was not um, legislatively, it didn't hold, it was a huge gain for the lobbying efforts and the public publicity on it and the uh, recognition of the public of the need. And I mean, you know, even health. Health people now talk about glyphosate. I mean, I can't tell you when I started working on this project. If I mentioned glyphosate, everyone would roll their eyes, especially if they I put it in the context of GMOs. And now, whenever I m- mention glyphosate to any of my health colleagues, they go, "Oh yeah, that's so." Dang-. You know, it's like it really is getting out there, <laughs> and people are now worried about it.
1: <laughs> there's a concern. There's a people are caring about it. One might say the
0: swirl has moved into you know, part of a different swirl. <laughs>
1: this uh, new constellation has emerged of these different connections. And so now it's bubbling around the potential harms of uh, gly- glyphosate and all the different. Exactly. exactly. But, you know,
0: there's a big leap from, you know, that to when you think about actual, you know, things that could be done. Like I'm a firm believer that we should, you know, really rethink our agricultural industrial systems. And we need to think about permaculture and, And uh, regenerative agriculture, these are huge potential solutions to not just the food problem, but to the climate problem, you know, but, you know, it would take a huge amount of heavy lifting and investment on the part of, uh, you know, government subsidies to shift from one kind of agriculture to the other. A huge change in the way people think about food scarcity and distribution systems and resources and all of that, but uh you know it's worth uh, yeah (laughs) it's worth trying to get there i'm not sure this world's gonna get us there but
1: (laughs) (laughs) perhaps not um and then um in the final so so now that glyphosate appears to be this actor in its own right with some kind of agency to sort of become an ally you also come upon a notion that might surprise some of the listeners which is that you describe glyphosate as possibly being an agent of care in what sense uh, do you mean care and how is it that a chemical can care?
0: Right. That's a good provocative question that I end the book on uh, at myself. I'm throwing it out there as a possibility, but I was influenced by Maria Puig de la work on soil and the idea that if, we, if we're thinking about ontology and humans not being the center uh, and most important character in our analysis and thinking about, she talks about soil being the thing that that is um, the beginning and end of the story. So humans play a role in soil health, but they're not the sort of endpoint of soil. Soil isn't a resource for human survival. Humans are an agent in soil survival. And so I was influenced by that and also by um, uh, Anna Marie Mole's work uh, in ontology and was just trying to pointing to this possibility of thinking of glyphosate does a lot of consolidating of political interest and a lot of consolidating of evidence of harm and even the case of it being a carcinogen has done this huge thing as i just said to move forward the the gra- the, the sort of landing of a cons- of a of a swirl with a lot of high concentration of action and movement and potential in a certain way Um, around chemical harm. So glyphosate kind of stands for a lot of other things that we could talk about in the agrochemical industrial food production system or in the world of chemical harm and exposure that helps people to sort of, um, or that helps us to think about um, its own survival as the thing that we're enabling, which is may or may not be good for humans. So, so what I mean by it being an agent of care is that it's bringing us along and it's not, it's not like we're, we're benefiting from it, but it's a it's, if we're thinking about care as this thing where the system is what we're operating in, and it's an ecosystem where multiple species interact and multiple things have to survive together, this is what we're producing. And this is, you know, it's not a great story, but it's, it it is in some sense doing some work for people to uh, change the way they think about survival in the world.
1: Wonderful. Um, And then towards the end of the book, you describe how the uh, agrochemical industry might be responding to this. Um, You quote Hugh Grant, who uh, makes an announcement uh, with uh, the idea that in the future, the next generation of um, modified agriculture will provide actual medicines for you. It'll provide chemicals inside you to help fight cancer or process fats. And eventually it'll intensify the value uh, added, as they say, of the corn uh, that they will be selling. What does that tell us about the swirl and sort of the next phase of it that it might be emerging?
0: Right. I mean, I think it will be another swirl, (laughs) Um, but that is the direction that things are headed from, especially now that Bayer Corporation owns Monsanto. It's an irony that, as I say in the book, we could think of uh, the profits of Monsanto as being a source of potential chronic harm And then the company that owns it also double dips and makes money on the medicines that it's producing to take care of those. I mean, think of all the medicines out there for digestive health problems. I mean, it's crazy, right? Everyone's got eczema, everyone's got all these gut issues and, you know, so you, you eat the food, get sick from it, and then you buy the the second medicine from them to take care of the sickness. Um, but that, that is, uh, not exactly what he's talking about there. He's talking about the the sort of promissory of genetically engineered food crops. You know, Monsanto has been right there. And those scientists that are now at Bayer have been right there in the middle of this world of making foods do the things that we want them to do to keep us healthy. And, f- you know, for many years, that was just based on the idea that you produced a ton of it um, at cheaply. And, and, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't really much attention being paid to what the side effects of the pesticides and other things were. Now the shift is to work with the microbiome world to figure out how to make foods do healthy things for the microbiome. So putting, you know, first of all, they're having to do it from the soil because they know the soil's running out of microbes and soils are being depleted all over the world. So they're trying to figure out how to make soils more, um, uh, uh, and nutritional and and healthy. And they're on it. I mean, they're going to, they're going to be doing this and it may be great. Like they may come up with great, res, you know, great solutions. It hasn't been the pattern. The enhancements make up 1% enhancements, not being the sort of pesticide resistant, um, you know, uh, sort of herbicide resistant, pesticide filled foods, but the sort of vitamin A, you know, putting vitamin A in golden rice and things like that, the enhancements that make it really healthy and more nutritious. I mean, they might be able to do some of that stuff. I, I was listening to a, um, a report the other day about uh, cows and uh, trying to reduce methane by uh, uh, creating um, some kind of engineering of the either plants or the cows that, so that they would produce less methane in the air, which is a great, you know, possible (laughs) future outcome. Um, I'm super skeptical because I think companies always like big companies like that always have a, uh, they want to have a win-win scenario where they're doing the right thing and making a lot of money at it. But I think that there's a lot of blindness around what the right things could possibly be when it means like losing, losing profit. So, uh, you know, all I know is the way that they've been ferociously resisting the attacks on glyphosate or the the idea that glyphosate could be dangerous um, is doesn't bode well for a future of really socially responsible companies like that.
1: Wonderful. Well, Vincent, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, I can imagine today. And we would like to ask you the final question, uh, the traditional question of the New Books Network, which is, uh, um, what are you working on next?
0: Uh, so technically, I'm reti- I'm going to retire. <laughs> I'm on my way to retirement. <laughs> and so I'm working on that. <laughs> but no, I've got uh, a bunch of projects. I've got an old book on Tibet that I still want to publish, perhaps. Uh, I've got, you know, I'm working on other people's work. I'm working with my graduate students. I'm working with the book series, uh, the Duke university press critical global health series. And, um, and, uh, you're talking about glyphosate with people, but I haven't got a second I've got other than the Tibet back burner project. I haven't got another book in mind or research project that I'm doing right now, but thanks for asking.
1: Well, San, I wish you a wonderful retirement. And uh, it sounds like a really uh, nice uh, time to transition into that stage. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. And uh, take care. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was fun.